Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. Hello and welcome everyone to PerfWeb 76, day three. I'm going to be joined uh, here in a little bit by my good friend and colleague, Min Tran. Uh, and uh, we're going to do the program today in two parts. The first part is going to have to do with uh, recirculation of your ECMO circuit and also the ability to uh, monitor and diagnose uh, thrombus in your oxygenator, which I think is a very important thing to know. Um, and it does this by measuring oxygenator blood volume, but I'll explain all of that as we go on. So really the first part is about the, the transonic ELSA meter, which um, has been uh, actually shown to benefit patients, is recommended by ELSO, the uh, Extracorporeal Life Support Organization, and something that I think we should be using on a routine basis uh, in order to um, uh, manage our ECMO patients. Right now, it seems like our ECMO patient volume has uh, decreased substantially um, over the uh, uh, course of what we've seen in the past you know, two years, um, we had some very high volume, very high acuity, um, some saves, which I was glad for, uh, but a lot of uh, a lot of patients who uh, were not saved and didn't uh, didn't do terribly well. So, uh, without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and get started, if I may, on my lecture. And then, so that's the first part. And then I'm gonna do the lecture. Min will be here by then. He's gonna be here in about 10 or 15 minutes. He was clinical today. So I appreciate him coming all this way to do this. I even have the ELSA meter here on the table, which is what I'm gonna be talking about. This is the ELSA meter itself. And it has flow probes that you attach to the tubing that are conveniently located back here. And these are electro, uh, or, uh, uh, ultrasonic flow probes, uh, very similar to the kind that we clip on tubing uh, for a variety of different things with the heart-lung machine to measure those flows, I'm sorry. Um, and uh, we'll go ahead and get started on the uh, lecture. And do, Magic, would you do me a favor? Do you mind letting Vicki know that we, that we went live on the air and I can't really talk to her right now and I'll call her back, but thank you, I appreciate that. Okay, so let's go ahead and get started on the slides if we can. Oh, full screen. Mm -hmm. Okay, very good. So recirculation, a vital sign indicator for VV ECMO patients. Now, that's for recirculation. VA ECMO, obviously, you're not going to have any recirculation, but the ELSA meter is very useful in that circumstance uh, for measuring oxygenator blood volume, as I told you, especially with seeing more and more our use of uh, either minimal or no anticoagulation strategy. So let me get the uh, let me get the pen, and uh, in case I want to do any drawing or anything like that. Um, I have no financial disclosures. Uh, I will say that Transonic, for the sake of all, you know, for for being one hundred percent transparent, did in fact give me this unit, and I used this unit 
um, on patients. I drug it around to three or four different hospitals, uh, measuring recirculation and oxygenator blood volume during our high ECMO period. Um, I encouraged the hospitals to buy them. Um, again, I, I received no financial benefit from you buying them, but I think you should reach out to Transonic um, at your earliest convenience and uh, talk with them about uh, this meter and its value because it has tremendous value and it has value also when you're doing exotic cannulation because you have two flow probes so if you have an ECMO circuit with multiple cannulas you can add them in and I'll show you all of that I apologize um, the slides that I'm going to be using were generously shared by Transonic uh, in VV ECMO, it's used primarily, of course, for patients with severe respiratory failure that are not responding to other conventional modalities, that being proning, high flow, BiPAP, CPAP, uh, and uh, of course, intubation and ventilator. The need for the cardiac function, obviously, is, is to be intact, though we do see frequently uh, some RV dysfunction uh, and sometimes RV failure, but we've discussed that in other programs and sort of the way that we manage that. But it's not uncommon to see VV, patient, VV ECMO patients, especially with severe ARDS, where they start getting fibrotic changes in their lungs and pulmonary hypertension, where their right heart seems to uh, become dysfunctional, and I've seen it fail completely. Um, and the hypoxia associated with whatever their respiratory distress is must be addressed. So that's sort of the reason why we do VV ECMO, right? We all know this, but uh, it's part of the uh, part of the the, the the sort of evolution of these slides. Um, recirculation is a known complication of VV ECMO. Now, I think it's become a much better known complication of VV ECMO. I think there's been times in our history where we did not really recognize it as a problem uh, or realize just how significant a problem it really is. It's not until you can actually measure it and get a definitive number that you recognize just how serious it is. And I'm gonna show you some things that I think will illustrate that very clearly. Um, obviously you want as much of the blood that you are oxygenating to traverse through the tricuspid valve down into the RV and out to the pulmonary circulation as possible. Vis-a-vis, -vis, if you're flowing for example, um, five liters a minute, you want as much of that five liters as possible to go on through the RV to the pulmonary circulation, not just go around in circles uh, because your effective ECMO flow is compromised because of that. We could talk about that again moving forward. Indications that recirculation is occurring has historically been left up to the specialist at the bedside to determine. And basically what that means is we, and I'll show you how we've done that, how we've historically done it, but it's an inference. You have an SVO2. If you see your access line or your, what would be considered your SVO2 in the ECMO, uh, uh, saturation increasing, it could be an indication of recirculation, but not necessarily. It can be indicative of other things too. It depends on how much. 
And then if you do see it going up, to what degree is it clinically significant? Is it clinically significant? Is it so bad that you essentially have no effective ECMO flow? So you're having to infer a tremendous amount when you aren't able to directly measure something. So here are some basic ECMO, VV ECMO cannulation configurations. We're all familiar with them. I, I won't belabor them. Uh, with the one to the furthest right being what seems to be the most popular these days, which is a single cannula, double lumen VV ECMO uh, system. And I will tell you this, other, other than the advantage, and there is a big advantage, of having a single cannula as what you see here on the right, okay, um, in terms of being able to ambulate this patient and having some reduction, of course, in infection control compared to the femoral route, whether it be two femoral or this configuration, um, either of these two configurations can have effective ECMO uh, flow and work uh, without significant recirculation. I've measured recirculation in all of the different types of cannulation strategies uh, that uh, we do and uh, have not necessarily found worse recirculation in the two cannula technique versus the single cannula technique. But it is important to recognize that not going into the groin mitigates infection and not going into the groin makes ambulation much, much easier. Sitting the patient up, proning the patient, all of those things are made easier when you are in either the right IJ or the uh, left subclavian, um, which is the usual approach for either the crescent catheter or the right IJ. So uh, we've seen this. I'm not going to belabor this, but this is the double uh, cannulation technique that you see draining from the inferior vena cava, returning it to the right IJ. And you can kind of see, I guess, on the right side here, how if this is too low and this is too high and you have them too close to each other, how you could get jetting from one cannula to the other. I think that's just something we're trying to uh, illustrate here. And here you see a typical radiograph of the uh, tip of the IVC cannula here and the tip of the SVC cannula here. So this is your access, the flow is going down, and here your access is coming from here, the pump going in. Um, generally speaking, you wouldn't have those reversed. This you want, you know, uh, at the at the uh, the IVC RA junction, and this you really want in the inferior vena cava. I would say this is a little bit too high in my opinion, uh, but uh, that's that's just based on this one image. Here's bifemoral, and the way you do bifemoral, and you can see it mostly on the right hand side. 
you notice that the drainage is down here and the return is up here. You're using basically two VFEMS, we'll say, or there's other iterations of it. That's the Edwards brand, but uh, uh, femoral venous cannula with multi-stage uh, drainage. And this shows just one drainage, but usually you use a multi-stage for this as well. But you're taking advantage of the natural flow of blood in our circulatory system. So the blood from the veins in the lower part of the body are going this direction and I can just draw, I think. Let me see, yeah, it'll let me draw that direction, okay? And so if your access is down here and your return is higher, of course you have drainage going this way too, but you can see that the recirculation has to come from this pulling some blood this direction is what's being illustrated by this arrow. And then I think I can go here and clear pen markings. There you go. Very good. Here you see an x-ray of this uh, double cannulation technique. And you can see here, let's zoom in a little bit. It looks like this one here, uh, I try to highlight it, it's coming up and ends here. And this one is going up. Actually, I, I, I lied. This one is the shorter one. It's ending here. And this one on the patient's right side is coming up and it's going into the, uh, into the patient infusing here. So this is your access inferiorly and this is your return more superiorly. And uh, you can see by this x-ray that these patients' lungs are pretty trashed. There's some real issues there. And this is just the diagrammatic illustration of that. Um, here is a uh, double lumen cannulation. We've seen this where you can get into trouble with this is on this section that you see over here. Um, if it's too deep, then this uh, reinfusion line can be down here and your access, instead of being in the superior vena cava, is actually in the atrium. You get a lot of swirling and actually there's quite a bit of recirculation that can occur if it's not in deep enough and you have the tip more in this area here, we'll say, and the return port, instead of being here in the mid atrium is much, much higher. You see you're, you're, you're actually infusing it. It's not going to be directed towards the tricuspid and rotation matters because it's outlet port is on one side. And uh, we can discuss that maybe as we move a little bit uh, uh, further down the road in this presentation. But recirculation in this occurs uh, as well. It is, can be positional. It's very important when you put this in that you secure it very, very well. I have seen cannula migration both in and out, and I've seen a cannula get pulled out um, to where the SVC cannulas were out, actually outside of the skin and uh, was able to suck air into the circuit. So that can happen. Uh, and uh, so, heavily securing this and probably one of the best surgeons that I work with uh, when it comes to, and he's, he's great in, in everything that he does, but he is exquisite at uh, uh, securing these, uh, this cannula and uh, his cannulas are not coming out. 
no matter how hard the patient pulls on it. And so I do uh, think that that is prudent and makes uh, the most sense is the safest for everybody and a lot less stress for me that I don't have that as a concern uh, and something to, uh, to worry about. Um, here is an x-ray with a little bit of overlay. You see the left lung looks a little worse than the right lung in this particular thing. But you basically, you know, and we were supposed to have, of course, Dr. Duvall talk about x-rays and how to read them and all that kind of thing. And this is a really good diagram. If you look at this and look at just an x-ray, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, but you can see, you know, here, for example, this is the, this is the knob of the, is it? coming on yeah there that's the knob of the pulmonary artery you can see that on an x-ray you can see the right atrium you can see the lv um, and get an idea of where these landmarks are uh, the inferior vena cave of course here's the diaphragm here and you would see you would want this cannula infradiaphragmatic that's something that we look for all of the time this is a looks like a pigtail chest tube that got put in so there's probably a pneumo on this side at some point in time um, here's the ng tube going into the belly um, and uh uh, you know, so forth. So give you a good idea of what's going on, but it shows you where the cannula should be. And I'm going to show you some other x-rays without the benefit of the overlay and see if we can pick up on those kinds of things. Here is the cannula in the neck. And so you have a uh, variety of different ones. I'm not familiar with the cavidian. This looks more like a dialysis catheter to me, like a temporary dialysis catheter, Merker catheter, Quentin catheter, whatever you want to call it. Um, the Origen dual lumen cannula looks like an ECMO cannula. Looks big enough to be one, certainly. The Mackay Avalon Elite um, is something we use a lot of. And uh, here is the uh, McKay dual lumen cannula, which I think is the original design maybe that they bought from, uh, uh, from Avalon uh, that, uh, uh, or maybe this is the Avalon and then this is the dual, the uh, McKay, the newer one. I'm really not sure, it doesn't matter. Either way, um, this must be the newer one, I think, because it actually has arrows in the direction of flow. And uh, that's very important because I took these lines apart one time and had these lines clamped uh, so that I could change a circuit out. And I did it at the cannula site over here. And then I forgot which direction it went and they had to pull it up uh, uh, on the, uh, G on the uh, Google so that I could see, but uh, it was very stressful. But the patient did really well. Actually, that patient probably didn't need to be on ECMO, thank goodness. Uh, but anyway, with that said, um, you can see here that the infusion is this one that has this angle to it, okay? And you have the straight one being the access. So the darker blood is going to the pump uh, and to the oxygen and then to the oxygenator and being returned now as arterialized. And you can see the orientation of how this is, needs to be. 
this is going towards the back of the head and this is going towards the front of the face or towards the towards the top of the uh, the uh, anterior portion of the ear. The ear is in this area here. And uh, this is very, very important. This looks like a pretty decent security job, but I would do better than that. What Dr. Matoyer does is uses proline and he actually comes up and loops in in between these and goes back down and he has this under under a, a slight amount of, of tension so that that is never going to come out. Um, now I guess it could migrate in slightly, but it isn't coming out, but he puts some very good, uh, good bolstering stitches on there, securing stitches on there, but that's how it's supposed to be. And as I said, it, it has more of a tendency in my opinion for uh, positional issues than does the double cannulation technique. That has some advantage, and that's one of those advantages. So what are the clues of recirculation? Well, you have the patient's arterial saturation is usually going down for some reason, and that reason is going to be ineffective ECMO flow and then you and again that's not to be confused with cardiac output effective ecmo flow is how much of the blood that's going through the oxygenator is actually getting to the patient's systemic circulation that's how you look at effective ecmo flow but your pre-oxygenator saturation is going up and i talked about that so you have an inference here now this could be higher and this may not actually come down. It depends on the patient's temperature, it depends on the patient's overall cardiac output, extraction rate, um, whether or not their lungs are able to contribute at all. There's a lot of factors that affect this particular thing. And there's also a lot of factors that affect this, but certainly in the absence of having something to directly measure it, having an inference gives you at least an idea that maybe there is a problem. And of course, then you could do the various things you need to do to check it out. You could look at an x-ray and a lot of times on an x-ray, you can see that the ECMO cannula has been malpositioned, but a lot of times you can't. And it could be the difference between a centimeter or two rotation or a centimeter or two in or out that can make all the difference in the world. So the change in effective pump flow and recirculation uh, compared with set pump flow in VV support is what's being illustrated here. And you can see that it is somewhat linear in nature. So if you have recirculation, the more you increase your pump flow, your RPMs, the more the recirculation is going to increase. So this is your recirculation going up and here is your effective ECMO flow as it goes down. So whenever you see a problem with the uh, arterial saturation decreasing and you think you need more ECMO flow and you increase your ECMO flow, but your saturations don't improve or even potentially get worse, that can be an indication of significant recirculation going on. So that's something uh, to, uh, to be aware of. So let's look at recirculation 
at the bedside. Well, if you're maxed out on RPMs with little increase in SAO2, your venous and arterial ECMO lines show similar coloring, and I'm gonna show you some videos about that here in a little bit. Patients' oxygen saturations remain low. Mixed venous saturation monitoring reads high. The patient requires similar amounts of inotropic support prior to cannulation or has a new need for inotropic support. The patient's NEARS monitor or cerebral oximetry readings are suboptimal. Um, and the arterial blood gas PO2, uh, which is, of course, your SAO2 only as a get blood gas remain low, and your ventilator settings remain elevated and you stay on 100% or 90% or 80% oxygen where you're trying to get as much if any contribution from the lungs of course that's assuming the lungs are contributing anything look i've done several ecmos where they had the 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 ventilator uh fio2 at a hundred percent we were maxed out on the ecmo the uh Patient's SAO2 was, you know, in the tank, 85%, 88%, just barely acceptable, suitable. But the patient's ventilatory blood volume or or, uh, tidal volumes were 70 and 80 cc's. Why do we have the oxygen at 100% on the ventilator? Turn it off. You could turn the vent off at that point in time. Your, your tidal volume is just do, filling dead space. It's not doing anything to contribute to the patient's oxygenation. So you have to really look at these things in totality and consider, is increasing my ventilator FiO2 really going to help me? And should I even bother wasting my time doing that? if the tidal volumes are that low. But the question is, how is VV ECMO helping this patient, the one that I just described? And in all fairness, um, it probably isn't that much, and there's a reason for it. So the transonic elsimeter, which we've been discussing, um, and of which I will tell you that I am a very big believer in, is a dual flow measurement uh, by transit time indicator dilution technology. That's a mouthful. So you give a saline bolus and the flow probes that, I'll, that I showed you earlier are able to quantify the recirculation in the ECMO circuit. How it does it, um, I'm not an expert on that kind of a thing. I know we use uh, we use uh, 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 the uh, the uh, flow meter. I know there's a Transonic has one for the coronaries, which is uh, transit time flow measurement TTFM. Um, that technology it makes sense to me, but I don't really understand the technology. I just know that it is a method that is validated that works right. So this is the meter and uh, 
Uh, it's used, of course, for adults, pediatrics. They calibrate it to your tubing. There's a lot that you could use three eighths inch, quarter inch, whatever the case may be. You can come up here and sit down if you want, Min. If you want to sit there, my friend, my dear friend Min has shown up. No, you can stay there if you want and watch the program from there until I get done with these slides and then come up. Uh, or you can come up now whenever you're, whenever it's convenient for you. So uh, Min is a good guy. He's, he's, thank God he came to help me with this today. So the transonic oscillator provides the information needed at the bedside to know exactly how much recirculation is occurring. With a single bolus of saline, you give about 20 cc's in the adult, okay? So I don't do anything pediatric, but I'm sure that volume is far different in pediatric cases. Um, it's able to quantify the recirculation and give you a display. And let me just show you very quickly, if I may, um, and this is not showing oxygenated blood volume. This is only recirculation. So the test that you do can be recirculation or recirculation and oxygenator blood volume. But here you have a probe that is on the return line of your uh, ECMO circuit. The blue is on your access line of your ECMO circuit. You give the bolus of saline back before the oxygenator, this flow probe sees it. This is distal to the oxygenator, but obviously proximal to the patient. It sees the difference in, it's either velocity or I believe it's velocity. Again, I'm not an expert on how the technology works. It senses the saline and here you see it sense the saline. Well, if all of it all of the blood that's going through this, this whatever volume that was with the saline goes through the tricuspid valve into the pulmonary circulation, you have nothing come back. But if it comes back and this sensor senses it, you get this blue curve. And that is what becomes your recirculation. What percentage of the volume of saline did you put into this line that immediately came back to this line is what these two curves are. And it gives you a value, 41%. That's a very high number. That doesn't mean that it's only due to catheter mal uh, malposition. We're gonna talk a little bit about that because there are other reasons that can happen. But what's important is you're flowing 3.6 liters. You're trying to get this patient as much flow as you can, but your effective ECMO flow is only 2,000, less than 2,200. So you're, you're really not, if the patient's cardiac output's four liters, then you can easily see you're now only treating 50% as opposed to over 90% of their cardiac output. Very difficult to get a recirc less than five or zero in all fairness. Uh, if you see one that low, there's other reasons for it, which I will discuss moving forward. 20% uh, is good, I, I would accept it. 15% is great. Anything other than under 15%, I would accept, but with the caveat, it may be that way for a different reason. And that's gonna be very important information to consider when you do this. 
this shows, uh, let me see if I can make this play again. Okay, so uh, I'm going to play this. I don't know how to freeze it, so I'll play it. Here's the bolus going in. You see it going through the oxygenator. There it goes. My red line showing it goes up. Sees that. There's your mark. Comes back. And some of it came back this way through the flow probe. Got picked up. And there's your blue wave. That's why you see that. And that's how it's supposed to look. That's a, uh, that is an excellent waveform. And looking at the waveforms is important too. You need to have the recirculation uh, or your uh, recirc line or uh, shunts turned off. If you have CRT running in the circuit, you need to stop that. There's a lot of different things that you, you need to consider and you need to do. Um, optimization of pump flow for best ECMO, because again, in this particular circumstance, turning the flow up may make things worse. You may get an x-ray, you may uh, assess the uh, position of the cannula, the rotation, and recognize that it's been, that it's different from what it was and may, may need to be tweaked. But it's very important, I think, to stress it makes a lot of sense to be able to adjust it, the cannula that is, measure it, and then secure it so that you don't just change it, it looks better on the monitor, you secure it, but then over a little bit of time, it gets worse again, and you've never validated that it actually was, uh, was in a good position. I think it's so very important. It's also very good at identifying low volumes or uh, depressed cardiac outputs or hyperdynamic circumstances as well and i think we show that uh here in fact i could talk about it here i don't know if that comes up um let me see if that pops up as an issue it really doesn't so i probably for best treatment that might be yeah that might have some some information and so we'll just keep going um here you see the effective cardiac uh, flow and the recirculation and the SVC, IVC, you can look at the arrows and kind of get an idea of how some of this blood is making its way into here. And so that percentage is what's measured. That's kind of redundant. Um, measurement is achieved via dilution technology. It was introduced by uh, Dr. Kravitsky. He's uh, in 1995 in Asayo. I've met him and he is such an interesting character. Um, he, in fact, he had the Moscow Mules. You were here that yeah, day, I believe. Day. Yeah. Um, he, there's been over 200 papers in its use in dialysis, in the ICU, and in the ECMO arena. Measurements are easy. It's a single uh, saline bolus and about one minute of time. Oh, and this is maybe something that's important. So it shows that the ultrasound velocity. Um, and that's what it is. This is measuring velocity. I think that's what I said. Mm -hmm. Saline is going to move faster than blood, and that's how it can tell because there's a change in velocity with the saline uh, mixed in. Here's the uh, ASIO uh, uh, president session where this was described. Uh, here it is. I'll blow it up. Designing a novel device to measure access flow and recirculation in hemodialysis. It's very good for looking at whether or not 
your, uh, for example, uh, if you use this in dialysis, they don't mostly because of expense, but uh, it would be very useful to know that your fistula is, uh, what your runoff is and so forth. It's got a lot of utility in that mm -hmm. world because those people depend so much on those fistulas. Mm -hmm. And if they're all, if they're starting to show signs of degradation, you'd want to know it in advance as opposed to waiting until you just have a failure. Something else that this does, which we talked a little bit about before, was measuring intraoxygenator blood volume. Now, here you have a square oxygenator. I say this every time I see this thing. If anyone can name me one thing in the human body that either propels or transports blood, conduit that transports blood, that is square or has 90 degree angles to it, mm -hmm. I will buy you a vacation to anywhere you want to go. Mm -hmm. Name me one thing. So I've always wondered, pondered, why would you make something that's square that's an oxygenator? I'd never really quite understood it. But you can look at an oxygenator and really not, they have the flashlight technique and maybe you can see some speckles, but it doesn't really give you an idea. Now this is the oxygenator. This oxygenator was actually, this one you're looking at right here was taken apart. You didn't see that. You don't see that. Maybe you see a little something right here. Look, you see that little dot? Mm -hmm. You see that little dot maybe? Maybe you see a little dot there. I kind of see it. There was one in the corner as well, but you didn't see that. No, no. And this is on the patient side. This is the arterial side. Big concern. So when you do your oxygenator blood volume, you'd, I've got some other images of it. You uh, get a, uh, you can set a baseline and then it will give you what percentage over time of the oxygenator you have open. But if it gives you, you just get, if you didn't do a baseline, let's say, you know your oxygenator holds 190 cc's mm -hmm. and you have 188 cc's, mm -hmm. probably within margin of error, mm -hmm. um, you're probably pretty close, but you can certainly watch it trend over time. And the only thing that is going to occupy the space in an oxygenator is going to be clot, right? Mm, for sure. That's the only thing. It's not going to be popcorn. <laughs> it's not going to be styrofoam. Mm -hmm. It's going to be clot. Mm -hmm. So if your oxygenator blood volume is decreasing over time, there's only one thing it can be, mm -hmm. right? Unless you're, like I said, injecting pellets into it or something like that, probably not doing that. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, troubleshooting recirculation, we discussed this, confirmed cannula position on most recent chest x-ray, echo, uh, confirmed security of the cannulas in the dressing, the rotation, uh, does it need to be repositioned with single lumen cannulas, potentially be positioned too close together, and that's the dual cannulation technique, not dual lumen technique, okay? Mm -hmm. um, with the dual lumen cannulas, you can have uh, turbulent flow depending on whether it's too deep or too shallow and really lose a lot of your effectiveness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you can also identify the optimal RPMs and ECMO flows because as I said, you can have, uh, you can, if you have 
recirculation because of catheter malposition, very frequently increasing your flow exacerbates mm -hmm. the problem, right? Mm -hmm. And this give you a little bit of idea where you have a recirculation of zero and then you have recirculation of 23%, increasing it made the recirculation even higher. Now, with that said, if your patient's cardiac output is three liters, then it stands to reason if you flow more than three liters, mm -hmm. you're going to have recirculation, right? right? You can't flow more than your cardiac output. The patient's cardiac output. All right? right. And so this is something that is very important concept to understand is if you see high recirculation, but you do an x-ray and it looks okay, the cannula position, and you start wondering what's the problem, do it echo and you may see the RV is starting to fail. Mm -hmm. Very common to see. You'll see it before you see the uh, liver enzymes going up from hepatic congestion. Mm -hmm. So knowing that phenomenon can occur. Conversely, if you have a super, super hyperdynamic heart, I don't know what's on this deck here, hypo or hypervolysis, hypo or hypervolemic. Um, I would say it's really hypo or hyper uh, contra, uh, 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 dynamic would be maybe more appropriate. Mm -hmm. um, but it can happen with recirculation as well because chatter is going to increase mm -hmm. recirculation. But this phenomenon to me is more of a hyper hypodynamic phenomenon where you have a heart that is not pumping well, mm -hmm. your cardiac output is depressed, your cannula is in good position, you're flowing uh, uh, 5.4 liters, but you have 41% recirculation. This could be, could be, of course, that you're having chatter, but it could also be that you are in cardiac failure. Yeah, right. Okay, That's you're overflowing the patient's mm -hmm. cardiac output, which is going to give you high recirculation. Mm -hmm. And it's a tool that you can use. Now, conversely, on the right, you see the recirculation is 8%. It's very low. Mm -hmm. Your cardiac output might be five liters a minute, you're almost at the top of your, your cardiac output. Mm -hmm. And, or, or it could be that your cardiac output's 4.6. You're barely overflowing it, but it's very unusual to see in a normal ECMO flow to cardiac output ratio mm -hmm. with a cannula positioned perfectly. There's no such thing as perfect, no, right? But you get close. Yeah. To have zero recirculation is extremely un. You're going to have some, some just because of the the design. You know, they're not the the, the holes aren't that far apart, right? Mm -hmm. They're only about that far apart, really. You just it's here's your here's your access, here's your access, and here's your return. Okay. All of that in a relatively confined space. Mm -hmm. This shows cardiac failure, uh, which we just got through talking about. And uh, this is telling us by quantifying recirculation of VV ECMO patients, there will be a quicker response time by perfusionists and ECMO specialists and ICU teams. Quicker response time leads to improved oxygen delivery to the patient, which is why we're there. Mm -hmm. uh, improved oxygen delivery is the overall goal of uh, VV ECMO. So, you know, I, and, and I think that uh, I see a lot of 
circumstances, even with patients on ECMO, where we are not optim. Yeah, I'm done with the slides. Thanks. Where we are not optimizing um, what we're uh, what we're doing uh, with the uh, with the with the flows, and I see saturations of 86, 88. I've seen 78. 80 and they're like oh that's okay we can we can tolerate that mm -hmm. but i would think you would want the highest do2 as possible mm -hmm. and the best arterial saturation that you could possibly get if you're on ecmo what are your thoughts i mean i agree i mean that's the point of putting the patient on ecmo i mean ideally you know generally you you put the patient on ecmo and the ecmo should be doing most of the work for the patient but everything has to be Perfect, which is not perfect, right? Yeah. Um, position, right? Um, proper uh, ECMO flows, um, proper volume on board. Yeah. Um, you know, making sure the patient's norm, no, hemodynamics are within normal or if they're not hyper, hyper or hypo, right? Yes, um, absolutely. And then, of course, if you're having, if you have somebody on VV ECMO, mm -hmm for respiratory failure. Mm -hmm. Now, VA ECMO, you can use the ELSA meter as well. Mm -hmm. You can use it for flows. You can use it for, um, like, let's say you do VAV, right? VAV, right. You can use this device. It's so nice to do that. You can have your flow probe on your line coming out of your oxygenator, mm -hmm. but then you can put one of these on each arm and know where you're, what you're flowing to each one, mm -hmm. right? Correct. Now, you can have it on one and subtract, but I like to be able to see all of the flows because when you're trying to modulate them and adjust them, it helps to see them oh, both, yeah. I mm -hmm. think. Because, you know, obviously with that, you have to um, make sure you ap appropriately have flows going VV and VA um, and not one taking away more than the other. So it's kind of a fine tune. Yes. So it absolutely helps to be able to see all the flows and, and to calculate and see what exactly is going to the patient um, with pulmonary um, support and cardiac support. Yeah, I think so too. Mm -hmm. Do we have any um, Do we have any questions online or anything like that from anybody? No, no questions or anything like that. So I've got a bunch of pictures, um, and uh, but we could talk more about the ELSA meter. So maybe you could take over here, and and I'm gonna get some slides and put them over here so we have them and we're going to just look at some fun okay. pictures yeah so you have some experience with this right you mm -hmm. you used it quite a bit mm -hmm. um do you want to talk about your experience with it and maybe some of the interesting cases you may have done if you have any if yeah i'm not trying to put you on the spot <laughs> i know you didn't come prepared and by the way everybody congratulations to min he is the uh, soon to be proud papa mm -hmm. of a third baby girl. That's right. And mm -hmm. uh, we had the gender reveal party just a week or so ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What does the baby do? Um, April 8th, April 9th. April 8th, mm -hmm. April 9th. Yeah, Very so good. About, about five, six weeks away. Yeah, so yeah. pretty getting pretty getting close. close. Getting close. And so we want to congratulate you. you on that. We're Thank really you so proud of you and happy for you. Thank you. Um, he keeps hot. He keeps producing HET perfusionists <laughs> that you know, we're, we're, we're building for the future, That's right? right? That's, That's right. what we're doing. That's right. Um, his two other daughters, they're, they're breaking the bank on, <laughs> on Girl Scout cookies. <laughs> so I know that we're going to have that yet again. But so go ahead, talk about the Elsa meter if you want to just play with it or whatever. And I'm going to get these slides okay. together and then okay. we'll, we'll have some more discussions. Um, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, from my experience with, you know, using the Elsa meter, um, I'd say it's been very helpful and um, 
educational, you know, from a standpoint where in most centers, you know, our programs don't have this available. So, you know, how do we actually know, you know, when we have uh, recirculation, you know, error, or, you know, is it, um, and obviously there's so many things to rule out, like what we talked about before with um, volume and um, hyperdynamic um, cardiac output and, um, yeah, and why don't they have them? Why don't they? I think that's my question. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, it'd be interesting to see. I mean, I guess with these, I mean, do you, do you feel that these are kind of ex an expensive um, tool or no, device it's, to have? No, it's the, 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 the machine itself, I think, is somewhere around 20, 20 to twenty-five thousand mm -hmm. dollars. It's a single cost. Mm -hmm. The flow probes last forever. There's no disposables. You have to buy, right? There's no disposables. Right, you buy right. some Vaseline. You can use one for multiple patients, mm -hmm. unless you're having, like I said, with using it for flows right. on a multiple arm. But for most ECMO centers, you know, where you have, uh, you know, you if you're doing more than one patient, then you're a bigger center. Uh, a couple of these um, would fit the bill if you're a typical community sort of based. ECMO program. Look, like I, I drug this around to multiple hospitals. You have, you have, and uh, drove me crazy. But you know, it's it saved us a, a, a ton when we had issues with patients. You know, looking like they're starting to get better, and then they start to trend downward. Yeah, and then you, you know, you, you know, there's so many things involved because obviously, you know, the, these patients are on ven on ventilators too. So there's a lot of uh, adjusting and tweaking the vent to try to get things right because you know. In addition to ECMO um, oxygenation, you know, we still have ventilatory oxygenation too. So um, definitely um, it's been helpful to have this tool yes. to, to help, help us troubleshoot and correct, you know, these, these issues. Because, you know, some, sometimes you get ABGs and um, the gases look good, but mm -hmm. then the patients, you know, aren't really doing that good. No, I yeah. know. Isn't so that... It's, it's, it's kind of a false... Um, False, um, false results, right? Which yes. you say from, from recirculation. Yes, I mm -hmm. think so. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, knowing, again, you know, I, I feel like we're there to provide flow mm -hmm. um, and we're there to deliver, help deliver oxygen to the tissues mm -hmm. and we're there to provide a platform by which they can protect, allow the lungs to heal by using ventilatory uh, protection strategies mm -hmm, or pulmonary protective strategies mm -hmm. with the ventilator. Uh, in fact, turning the ventilator off, getting the ventilator off of the patient, extubating the patient mm -hmm. so that you don't get uh, ventilator-associated pneumonia, so you I don't like get, is. right all of those Very things common. and try and uh, so I think that optimizing our ec if we're going to do ECMO mm -hmm. then do it right correct if you if you if you're going to just do it to do it mm -hmm. then don't do it if you're going to do it then do it right mm -hmm. and uh, optimize it give the patient the best option opportunity they have to survive now with that said there are some patients, I mean, we have to recognize that. I'm going to show you some uh, slides. Um, some patients who, doesn't matter what you do, it's not enough. It's not enough. And we maybe we shouldn't much, have right? done ECMO at all. Right. They're not good and, candidates. Right. And we discussed this just recently. 
when you put someone on ECMO, if you take an otherwise healthy individual, mm -hmm. I say this a lot, you take an otherwise healthy individual and put them on ECMO, you're going to hurt them. True. You will hurt them. Not good. So, so there's like a, kind of a fine line between when people say putting on someone on ECMO, catching them at an early time, but did you actually, you know, jump the gun and put them on ahead and yes. not really... And hurt them. And hurt them, correct. And I have seen patients correct. that have, in my opinion, now I'm not a physician, but, you know, I've been doing this for 43 years. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not that I'm, and I, I, I I'm not, a, but I'm not a physician. And I recognize that. And I think that's something that I have to, to, to say. However, I am 100% convinced that I have seen patients who were put on ECMO too soon that, in my opinion, would have been better off not being on ECMO who didn't do well because of the ECMO. Mm -hmm. I have seen that happen. I've also seen patients where I think they would have really benefited, but the decision to put them on ECMO took too long mm -hmm. and the damage to their lungs was now irreversible. True. Um, and then of course there are diseases where, you know, ECMO doesn't cure anything, it right? Yep. You put a patient on ECMO, you still have to treat the underlying condition, mm -hmm. whatever that is. Mm -hmm. And if it's viral replication in the lung, you gotta stop it. Mm -hmm. If it's an ARDS pattern and the lung is grossly inflamed, you have to mitigate it. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't, you can keep the patient supported, but if they're not a lung transplant candidate and they have no lung tissue left, mm -hmm. when it's all said and done, you've accomplished nothing. Right. And then, you know, you run into the, all the other factors that come with putting someone on ECMO. ECMO does save someone for the, for the moment time being, but, you know, you have the, all the contraindications of risk of bleeding, right? Cannulation yeah. sites. Um, needing uh, more volume to support the ECMO circuit. So yep. you, you overload the patients. And then if the patient, is, if you aren't getting that volume, that, uh, that extra volume off, then what happens is they uh, get edematous, right? Yeah. Um, also could lead to some uh, pulmonary edema. Yeah. Uh, fluid, you know, lung, fluid overload in the lungs. And that doesn't help the lungs. I mean, we're trying to save the lungs, but then, right. you know, but you need volume to, to, to flow. So, Correct. So there's a lot of uh, things that factor in. Uh, it's just not you put them on ECMO and then it's a, it's a piece of cake, you know, and a walk, walk yeah. down a park after that. No, a walk, a walk in a park. Yep. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay. Let me share this airdrop. And I'll share it with the iPad. Done. I was trying to do this earlier, but David was yelling at me <laughs> about being late, and uh, it was really tough. Okay. Say that again? Not being prepared. Not being prepared, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. I just told him we were going to be late, but we weren't. We were right on time. No, you did a good job. I did. I, thank you. Thank you. Somebody recognizes it. <laughs> I appreciate that. Okay, so let me finish this. So let me pull up uh, some fun pictures. Now, before we get started, uh, and I'll share this here in just a second. Oh, it's already being shared. Let me just, uh, um, yeah, I'm working on it. I don't <laughs> want to sign in. I just want it to work. Um, 
Oh, I have to share it again. It's not. It's not sharing. Here. Okay. Joe's iMac. There, I'm sharing it now. Is it going through? There it goes. Okay, good. Okay, and then slideshow, presenter view. There. Okay. Okay. So, I've got. I I, I went ahead and pulled a bunch of videos, mm -hmm. and I figured we'd just have a conversation. Okay. But before we get started, and we're running uh, actually a little early, we're actually doing really well because we just finished the first section of this. Mm -hmm. And so we only have one hour left to go. Okay. <laughs> only one hour left to go. Because yeah. Dr. Duvall was supposed to be here, mm -hmm. but he put on a second case, mm -hmm. so he's not doing x-rays. But guess what I have a lot of? X-rays. X-rays and seats and, and, and echoes. echoes. Yeah, I don't have any CTs, but I have I have X-rays and I have echoes. TEEs or two D echoes. This is a two D. Two D. Okay. But uh, yeah, so no, no, so no three. Come on, I I can do I, I TEE a little little, little overcomplicated. Okay, it, it let's keep it simple. Uh, let's keep it simple. But before we get started on this, do you have any questions for me? Questions? Yeah, just questions about uh, anything. You can ask me anything you want. Um, I guess I did have a question. I was no, you can't have a raise. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I do have a, a, a third, you know, daughter, <laughs> third, which is going to be your third granddaughter. That's right. right you know, that's right. So for those of you who don't know, <laughs> so uh, you know, kids are expensive these days. I know. We'll, I know. We'll, 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 we'll talk more about another day for that. <laughs> um, I guess I, I did have a question. I was wondering, um, and, and you might have talked about this before um, in a passing one of your talks um, in regards to uh, when, when you do a, um, when you, 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 you're doing a case and, um, you know, the patients have um, chronic kidney disease. Um, what, what's the fine line between, you know, when you decide to use normal saline, uh, you know, um, plasma light or normal salt, or is there any... Um, any benefits from using it, you know, yeah, and well, make, making that call, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, you have a hemoconcentrator, you know, you can uh, balance everything on pump and whatnot. Um, and, and obviously there's things that, you know, you have to look for or, or manage properly so you don't um, make the patient go into uh, any acute kidney, you know, failure, which they're already in chronic kidney failure. Yeah. Right? So I think, I think that's a lot, a lot, there's a lot of different ways sure, to, yeah. to view all to of view that. that. And yeah. I'm, I'm really not the world's expert on replacement fluids as far as whether you're going to use saline, you're going to use Normasol or Plasmalite, which is in my view, the same exact okay. fluid. Um, or you could use lactated ringers, of course, you know, but mm -hmm. all of those fluids um, have, especially normal saline, mm -hmm. have a tendency to elevate both the sodium correct uh or rather to do both elevate the sodium and reduce by dilution your bicarb especially when you're using a lot of it mm -hmm. um now that can be overcome with even though normasol and, and plasmolite are both ph, pH, pH balance right? they don't have any bicarb in them mm -hmm. so it's acetate ph balanced mm -hmm. so you still dilute your bicarb if you give enough normal if you give for example um if you were to do uh 
you have a high potassium. Correct. And you're going to use CVVH. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, all right. Mm -hmm. So you're going to use ultrafiltration. So you have a hemoconcentrator in your in your in your pump. And you start ultrafiltrating off a liter and pour a liter of saline in. Mm -hmm. You pull off a liter and you pour a liter of saline like in. Z-buffing. Z-buff, yeah. Even though the fluid that comes off is isoosmotic. Mm -hmm. Isoosmotic, yeah. The fluid you're replacing it with has no bicarb. Mm -hmm. Bicarb's coming out, bicarb ain't going in. That's right. You're removing sodium, but you're adding sodium, mm -hmm. okay, at a higher level, higher, higher percent, higher amount. Because mm -hmm. I think sodium is like 154 of normal saline, right? Okay, mm -hmm. so your normal say, normal sodium is 140. 140. Yeah. So you will end up, you'll drive the potassium down because it doesn't have any potassium in it. So they'll work for that, mm -hmm. but the, sodium will the cost is your sodium goes up, mm -hmm. which it can go up too high. And your bicarb goes down, so you get some acidosis. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, acid environment increases your potassium. So here you are trying to reduce right. potassium. Right. Now that, that decrease in pH drives your potassium up. So you have to give bicarb. bicarb to treat that. But now when you give bicarb, what's bicarb? It's sodium, sodium bicarb. Sodium so bicarb. now you end up with this significant <laughs> hypernatremia that you didn't want. Mm -hmm. And you have to be concerned about that, right? right? Now it'll help you with decreasing cerebral edema for sure. Mm -hmm. And probably probably in most cases isn't going to really hurt anybody mm. in the short term and mm. if it's not going to get that high it's mm. not going to get so high it's critical but you can manage that with bicarb and you can manage it by switching off to let's say half normal saline mm. use 0.45 instead of 0.9 right. a couple half of bags okay. right so right. you can adjust that or uh -huh. you can just use a bicarb-based fluid, fluid? Okay. which makes more sense. Correct. And when you look at the which fluids, plasmite, normosol, no, right? no, no, those are not bicarb-based. Oh, those are acetate, acetate pH balanced. Acetate pH They're acetate-based. Right. And so bicarb-based is like what we use when we do the systemic hyperkalemia. Right. It's what you use when they do CRRT, CRT, those big the giant big bag. bags. Now right. they don't make them in small bags, they come in five liter bags, mm -hmm. right? And that's one of its disadvantages because there is no market, no market for right. them in the smaller bags. But, but there should be, I think, in the perfusion world, if they could just make a three liter bag, we could use that I think we should be using that to prime the pump with, for right. example. I think we should be using that whenever we do Z-buff. Because we, we end up putting bicarb in our prime too. Correct. We, yeah. And you can get all these various formulas okay. with either higher potassium of four, potassium of three, mm. potassium of two, potassium mm. of zero. Whatever you want to you meet can the get, patient's needs. Right. Mm. You could get it with... Now you, you, they do have some with phosphate in it now because historically you would get a hypophosphatemia mm -hmm. when you did CVVH because it didn't contain any phosphate and they would just use KFOS or something like that mm -hmm. and they would treat it with that. But they have some newer fluids now that have that. Mm -hmm. So nothing's perfect, mm -hmm. but your sodium will stay 140, your bicarb will stay, you know, 28 or something like that. Your pH will stay normal and you don't, and you are accomplishing your goal of removing the potassium, which is what you're trying to accomplish okay. in that circumstance or removing lactate or because, you know, if you leave somebody, you know, it's interesting. I think that's another con uh, concept, but CVVH being used, for example, in trauma 
even in the absence of, uh, let's say, uh, renal failure, but you have an elevated lactate. Well, you let your lactate get high enough and keep it there long enough, you're gonna go into ARDS from the hyperlactemia, right? Mm -hmm. So you wanna treat that. And so I think that we underuse technologies and uh, very frequently, and I think that we, I, I think there's a lot of really cool technology out there and timing of initiation is a confounding issue. The mm -hmm. data is never really very good about that. Mm -hmm. It takes a long time to figure out when should we do something. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a lot of technology out there that we just don't know how to use in the right circumstances. Mm -hmm. And I wonder why sometimes, and you know, also, you know, if, if, if you ever notice sometimes when you go on pump, um, just for a normal case, um, and your lactate is normal, and mm -hmm. you go on, your first gas comes back, your lactate is a little elevated. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right? Well, I mean, I think that, yeah, and I, 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 I think you have, in fact, if you remember, you remember that camera that I had? The camera? That camera that went under the tongue that looked at the microcirculation, oh, I that, that microcirculatory yeah. camera. Mm -hmm. If you, when I took that and we went on pump and you could see, mm -hmm. you could literally see the microcirculatory flow mm -hmm. alter and change mm -hmm. and become less and sluggish and all of that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I think there, and then of course you have you know, an artificial, massive artificial surface now. Mm -hmm. You have a blood air interface now. Mm -hmm. um, God knows what all happens. And I'm sure the patient to some degree, they don't have much time to adapt, but they have probably some adaption that goes on. Mm -hmm. And so you see that lactate go up cool. because of these microcirculatory flow uh, derangements. And then over time it improves and we wash it compensation out as we, and we're as able to, right. And we're able to clear it. Clear it. Um, or we do CVVH and we clear it artificially, which we can do, right. um, or use buff or Z whatever we want to call it. I call it CVVH, mm -hmm. but do Z buff. And, and typically I've thing. noticed, you know, by the end of your, towards the end of your, your pump run or when you come off, your lactate usually normalizes. And, yeah, you know, or it's if not it's not, then we may just not have been flowing enough on that patient. That's true. Very true. Um, yeah. You know, because I think that's something about perfusion that people, you know, these are there's there's there, there's understanding perfusion and then there's understanding perfusion, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, our job is to flow enough to keep the brain and the rest of the organs alive. Mm -hmm and able to go on to work post-operatively so the patient can recover and go home, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And sort of remember who they were <laughs> Correct. and their families That's and right. everything else. Mm -hmm. But we're also there to facilitate the operation being accomplished. Mm, that's correct too. So, and I just had a conversation with this, uh, uh, with, uh, with uh, Dr. Matoyer, a second time I've invoked his name today. Uh -oh. um, yeah, we discussed um, pulsatile flow. Pulsatile flow, right. So if you take into consideration that, what's a normal aorta, four, 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 four centimeters? Mm -hmm. Four centimeters? About, about 3.8, four, somewhere mm -hmm. around there, four centimeters. And we're using an a seven millimeter uh, cannula, cannula in it, mm -hmm. 
and then what's the length do you think of the of the aorta uh the ascending aorta probably about two inches about two two three and a half, two and two. a half inches mm -hmm. and what's the length of our arterial line pump tubing 10 feet at eight least, feet yeah, about eight feet eight six feet, to eight feet six to eight six to ten feet depending six on your configuration oh, yep, right uh -huh. and it's three-eighths diameter mm -hmm. how are you going to get a pulse that actually is meaningful through that that's true there's a lot of uh loss you know uh resistance and you know yes. measured uh pressure and then what injury are you creating whether it be by jetting and sheer uh injury to right. the cells as right. it goes through the cannula Cannula's with this force artificial pulse at the velocity right with this, the pressure yeah. mm -hmm. well you're you're having to put it through something okay to give you an idea there's the size of the aorta mm -hmm. There's the size of the cannula tip. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. so the normal heart pumps <coughs> and ejects through a pretty big opening. Yeah. All that blood goes, whew, and you get the pulse. Right. When you're on pump, you're going through a line that's maybe the opening's about the size of my, of my pinky, and there it is stuck in the aorta mm -hmm. with a right angle usually. Sometimes it's straight. Mm -hmm. It just depends, I guess, on the cannula. But how are you going to get a pulse again that is physiologic in that? You can't. And you look at the monitor and all you see is a little like sine wave. Mm. You don't see a pulse. Right. Uh, and then you take into consideration, do you need a pulse? Mm -hmm. If you look at the total artificial heart, uh, all of those technologies are continuous flow pumps. That's true. So and, and, flow, yeah. and, and one of our former vice presidents, Dick Cheney, he walked around with a with a total artificial heart mm -hmm. for how long before he got his transplant right. and that's continuous flow and he was still able to you know he still was darth yeah. vader <laughs> you know correct uh -huh. mm -hmm. so he lived and did just fine mm -hmm. so uh, how much of it is continuous flow versus pulsatile flow i don't think pulsatile flow is the right thing to do on 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 pump i don't i i think there's more risk uh, of harm than good, including intimal damage from the jetting of the blood, like a like almost like a pressure washer, like a pressure washer. against the the lumen of I the think aorta. You have like an older patient who have um, more plaques, pla yeah, plaques. yeah, something, yeah. yeah, something gets lifted up or mm -hmm. whatever. I think mm -hmm. there's a problem with mm -hmm. that. Yeah. So I don't like it. And I, and I guess the surgeons who you like to use it um, are outweighing the benefits versus the risks because yes. I mean, it, it uh, helps probably uh, give better for um renal renal protection right but outcomes. is it is it is there any data that that's true any data whatsoever that you can point to and say here's a conclusive study that shows right. that pulsatile flow on 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 cardiopulmonary bypass improves renal flow or improves urine output on bypass or reduces the risk of acute kidney injury, acute renal failure postoperatively. Mm -hmm. Can you show me anything? I don't think you can, mm -hmm. but and maybe somebody can. If somebody can, send it in. I'm mm -hmm. happy to look at it and review it and consider it, but I don't think there's anything out there that exists that really does mm -hmm. that. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, um, did you have anything else? No, that was, that was probably the, one of the main things that I wanted to uh, mm -hmm. uh, talk to you about and see what, what kind of uh, which you could share with me on that. And yeah. Well, I, I think we talked about four or five different things. I'm not sure if I answered <laughs> you the did, question you did. or not. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, good. Yeah. So 
so let's look at this image. I want to show you. So my daughter sent me this image. And, and really the reason why I want to show this image is because I wanted to talk to you about standby. Okay. How we stand by mm -hmm. and what we stand by for. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you look, this is the right atrium. I'm going to kind of draw through the right atrium right here. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is the right atrium. Mm -hmm. The right atrial appendage is over here. I'm sorry, the left atrium. I'm sorry. The left atrium, left atrial appendage is over here. And this is the mitral valve. Mm -hmm. And this is the left ventricle. Okay. Okay. Now, this thing that you see here, mm -hmm. I'll try to get my, there it goes. This is a left atrial appendage exclusion device, otherwise known as a watchman. A watchman, okay. Okay. We've, we've done those. That's, yeah, you've done a lot of them. Stand by for them, Stand right? By, yes. Okay. So here is. Do you notice anything odd about it? Like, remember, it's supposed to be in the appendage, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Let me just show you that video one more time. You see the mitral valve, the, the, right. It doesn't look like it's in the appendage to me. No, it doesn't. No, but let's take a look and see what happened next. That's a two chamber long axis view, right? It's a, I have no idea. My daughter does it. Okay. It's, it was a, it was okay. a, it was a transthoracic echo. I, I have no idea what okay. kind of echo it is. I don't view trans, what the hell are you talking about? I, I used, You're I used, giving a class on that. Cause I have no idea what the <laughs> hell you just said. Well, you know, cause previously my, 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 uh, former, uh, occupation, you know, I was, uh, when I did respiratory Yeah. and I went to LSU, we, we, uh, learned how to do, uh, 2D echoes. Did you? Ultrasound. So it was respiratory and, and ultrasound. Well, I need ultrasound. you to, you need, I didn't but, know this. <laughs> but I, I never worked as an ultrasound technician. But you learned it. In school, correct. I yeah. Did. I did. Well, you know more than I do. <laughs> okay. So now, uh -huh. you see it? Oh, I see Look it at it. Look at it. It's it moved. sort of goes out and plops through wow. the mitral valve. Oh, that's not good. No, that's not good. Uh -huh. Watch this again. Plop. Yeah. Plot. Now, do you think everyone was stressed in the room? Of course. Wait, wait, <laughs> it gets better. It gets better. Here it is. You got stuck in the LV. In the LV. But wait, show you that again. For those of you who can't see, Here's where, it, here's where it started. Let me get this to, let me get it to stop. Here's where it started. This mm -hmm. is the left atrium. Mm -hmm. It should be in here. This is the mitral valve. This is the left ventricle. Mm -hmm. And the aorta's gonna be over here, mm -hmm. okay? You can't see it in this view. This is the device that they have lost control of. So watch it again, bouncing around in the LV. You could still get it maybe through the mitral. You could still maybe get it, but what happens? 
This is when all hell broke loose. Oh, no. It gets worse. It is stuck in the LVOT. Yeah. Oh, wow. So it, what you're looking at here is here's your aortic valve. Your LV is over here. Yep. This will be your RV. Your, this should be your uh, RV, I believe. Uh -huh. I'm not sure. But your, your LVOT is right here. Mm -hmm. So the blood should be going like that. Right. Yeah, you see the valve right see, there. You right see there. it stuck. Yep. There it is. Wow. And you heard the little noise in the background? You have the sound on? Da da da. da the alarm going off? Yes. This resulted in they went from uh oh to get. CT in here now, perfusionist, wow. CV surgeon. They had to go ahead and open the chest. Is it the bedside? And uh, no, this was being done in the hybrid room, thankfully. But hybrid they had room. to put the patient on pump. Okay, okay. Um, they had to do a sternotomy. They had to clamp the aorta. They had to go in through the uh, aorta, through the aortic valve, fish it out, uh, and uh, check everything, and then close the patient up. Patient actually ended up doing oh wow that's great which is amazing so the patient was awake for, for this whole time no not at this point not at this point okay no at this point in time the patient was going night night <laughs> yeah the patient was 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 coding oh, by the time they got to it stuck in the lvot mm -hmm. the patient was coding oh yeah yeah so simple watchman procedure that was not simple uh -huh. so i tell people this all the time it's always easy till it ain't Till it's not correct. And a lot of what we do is like that. Oh, yeah. Right? You just never know. No. So at, in your career now, how many standbys, I'm going to find another one. How many standbys um, Watchmen's? do you think you've had to, uh, uh, where you were there just for standing by? Oh, for any case? That, yeah, that you, from a standby to conversion to fire drill. Like, like, like you had to go, you went from standing by to this is a fire drill now to try to save the patient's oh, life. Um, uh, probably at least at least fifty over fifty cases. I mean, I've been really. I've been, That's a lot. I mean, and you know, some of them were tavers. Um, you know, some of them were. Um, well, I guess window windows. We've had some windows that we've had to go on pump for. Mm -hmm. um, not a watchman, thank thank God. Um, not yet. Not yet. But it can happen. Correct. But it can happen. It can happen. So you've done about I, 50. I, I, I wonder what happened there, why the, why the watchman became detached. That I don't know. Okay. That would be interesting to, to know. I have no idea. My daughter sent me those images and said, you got to see this. Oh, wow. Because she was actually the one who noticed it was free-floating around in the atrium. Mm-hmm. And got everybody's attention uh -huh. and then said, uh-oh, because it went down. She saw it drop through the, through the, the mitral. Mm -hmm. Now everybody's attention has gotten and they're trying to figure out how do we get this thing. And then the next thing you know, it's all the way in the ventricle. Mm -hmm. It's below the valve, mm -hmm. the mitral. And then it's in the LVOT. Mm. And at that point in time, the patient was, of course, decompensating. Mm. So it was a true fire true drill. True fire drill. 
Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. during during the thought of the extra strategy, it, it just became a true emergency. Just right. Let, let's let's just go on and yeah and, and get it done. Yeah. So they ended up going on pump, right. clamping the aorta, um, opening, doing an aortotomy, mm-hmm. uh, fishing it out, and uh, being done with it. Wow. Yeah. Interesting case. It is. Interesting case. So I wanted to, can we go, look, I just want to go over some, some mm-hmm. pictures, right? Okay. So here's a picture. Uh, I wonder if I can blow it up. Yeah, I probably can. These are normal lungs. So mm-hmm. these lungs are um, going to be, these are transplantable lungs, right? They've been transported on that device that they have. They're keeping them per- ventilated and perfused. And these are normal, healthy lungs. And since we're just coming post-COVID, I wanted to show people what COVID lungs look like. And these are two lungs I'm going to show okay. you. And th- is that a lung box that those lungs are? Yes, right? yes, the yes. Box. So here are the explanted lungs. These were taken out of a 26-year-old man, a young, healthy boy, really. Um, mm. And it looks like a liver. Okay, compared to what I just showed you. And then looking at it, looking, looking superiorly down, looking at the, the, the bronchus, mm-hmm. uh, the right and left main bronchus, you can see what these lungs, these are end block. These are removed. And it's not one lung. Those are two lungs that were removed. Wow. Because you can see the right and left main right. bronchus. Yep. Absolutely horrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, so when people tell you that COVID's not real, I'll blow this up a little bit so you mm. can really see it. Right. But that is horrible. So this patient, 26 years old, they did survive. They got this, uh, they got this, uh, oops, I'm sorry. What did I do? Oh, good gracious sakes alive. Sorry, guys. Um, there. Yeah, they got these lungs. These are the lungs that they got. Mm-hmm. Nice, new, healthy set of lungs. Mm-hmm. But you know, lung transplant isn't all that in a bag of chips, right? You you could spend you, you, your your life expectancy somewhere between what seven to ten years, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. Isn't that guaranteed? The first lungs you get will will um, complement your body. You may, yeah. you know, they may reject them. You may have to come back and get a second set of yeah. lungs if you're lucky. Yeah, right? it's a rough. That's a rough sport, man. It's mm-hmm. a rough sport. Sometimes you get the lungs and um, the, the patients don't tolerate it well, and sometimes you have to put them on ECMO. Yes. Yeah. With, yes. The, with the with the new lungs. With their new lungs. Yep. Yeah. That's think about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's terrible. That's terrible. But you know, fortunately, COVID is. I think it seems to have 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 uh, 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 you know reduced a great deal. Mm-hmm. Things are looking a lot better. Um, I'm much happier now than we were. We were. That was one of the hardest uh, 20 to 22 months, 24 months, somewhere around there that I've ever experienced in my career. It felt like 40 months. <laughs> it did. It, it, felt, mm. it felt like 40 years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in many ways. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was a, uh, that was a tough time. It was. And, uh, but, you know, it, and it just seems to have disappeared. Mm-hmm. It's very strange. Right. I don't think it's disappeared. It's probably maybe, do you think maybe it's, dormant in a way maybe people are getting it and it's just not being some not not symptomatic from it's it not as much. virulent a strain Correct, that's the dominant strain mm-hmm. i don't know i mean i talked to the folks down the med center and uh i uh, talked to rick he said that they had i think three patients on um he didn't feel good about any of the three that he had on mm-hmm. um and they usually have you know 10 12 wow. you know in that right. range right mm-hmm. well during the height of the pandemic mm-hmm. uh but they have three left 
that he said have been there for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't seen any Omicron. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's true. Not uh, not uh, not, not, not for our services. No, no, not we that have, have, see, we have seen them in ICU, but they've they've they've, they've uh, improved. Yeah, and they're, they're responding, responding well to. I think our I think our 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 uh, our treatments have gotten better, mm-hmm. but I also think the disease is not as 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 virulent, it's not virulent uh, as the uh, previous strain was. Delta was just outrageous. It was horrible. Yeah. First one was bad. First one was but bad. But the original strain, the Wuhan strain. The Wuhan, yeah. But the Delta was bad. Oh, it was bad. And I just hope we don't see another one of those. I hope so, too. So in the interest of showing us looking at the uh, recirculation, what I want you to see is this is your axis. Yeah, this is your access line. This is going this direction back to the pump. And this is your return line going back back to the patient Mm -hmm. so this is your red blood this should be your blue blood blood. okay so i'm gonna play the play the video probably flip though right shouldn't ah very good so let's watch the video so look do you see the pulse look at the very top if i can do it and not stop it Mm -hmm. look right here do you see it do you see it flashing red yeah yep let's do that again so the people at home can see it. See it, see the flashing? Yeah, I see it. Classic severe recirculation. I'm gonna blow it up a little bit and see if we can even see it a little bit better if I can. Let me see if I can, uh, maybe I have to do it while it's running. Let me try that again. You get that flash of bright red blood from the Yeah, watch. See it? Mm Mm-hmm. See that flash? I see it. Exactly. So you noticed it right away. I did. <laughs> what do you notice? Um, I noticed how bright the the comparison was compared to the uh, other line. They're both uh-huh. very bright red. Yes. You should one should be a little darker than the other. Yes. But um, what else do you notice? Um, that the Venus line was on top. The Venus, yes. The the um the return. This cannula actually rotated rotated. 180 degrees degrees. Mm -hmm. completely flipped Mm -hmm. because remember i said the return is the one with the angle and it's supposed to be up Up. and you can clearly see the patient's hair you can clearly see that cannula flipped 180 degrees Mm -hmm. and just by reversing that Mm Flipping it back, orienting it properly, mm-hmm. the, uh, there was significant improvement mm-hmm. in that. So the other thing that we've been doing a lot of lately is um, using uh, minimal to no anticoagulation on our ECMOs. Mm-hmm. And this was one of the cases that we were doing, one of the early cases. Mm-hmm. Oh, here, I'm sorry, there. That's remember, another, another video of the same thing. And what you see here is this is air and this is air being caused by cavitation this is a centrifugal pump the outlet is down here Mm -hmm. and what you see right here is a big clot clot. just stuck there right just stuck the stagnant uh, yes dead space sucked a big clot Mm -hmm. back from the patient got into this and occluded it and this pump 
uh, actually eventually went uh, and uh, decoupled Decoupling, itself. The yeah. magnet decoupled. So mm-hmm. um, I was able to get a picture of it. And of course, we had to change this. There's our oxygenator right over there. And uh, so we had to change it fairly quickly. And I actually pulled a clot out of that. And that clot was about that long. Wow. It was about that long. It was amazing at how much, uh, how long it was and pretty thick. So it was quite occlusive mm-hmm. uh, to this. So uh, we ended up uh, uh, adding a little bit additional anticoagulation on this patient. I think that was some of the hypercoagulability that we saw on some of these patients. A lot of these COVID patients ended up with DVTs and PEs mm-hmm. and a variety of other things, uh, having a lot of, uh, of, of, uh, uh, of uh, subtotal uh, pulmonary emboli was very common in these patients for some reason. Although most of our patients, this was the only one that I had this problem with, but uh, we had others, you know, that uh, seemed to have a lot of clot, but we didn't have it in the pump. The pump didn't clot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, because COVID uh, seemed to make some of the, some of our patients hypercoagulable, right? Yes, that's what I thought. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, you know, with us trying to reduce bleeding in a hypercoagulable patient with a coagulation stimulus like ECMO, mm-hmm. you know, there's certainly some issues there. But of course, we we have surgical site bleeding. You got to pick your you battles, know, right? You got to pick your battles. It's mm-hmm. very difficult. Yeah, mm-hmm. a lot of people, uh, I think a lot of people, you know, for the clinicians that are watching today, you know, they clearly, they know. Um, for those who may be watching that aren't clinicians, I think that... Uh, there's a, uh, especially with the families that I've dealt with uh, through the years, there's, there's uh, uh, some have a completely unrealistic view of what this is we're doing to that patient. Mm. It's uh, very dramatic. And I mm. think that it's uh, sometimes mis, misconstrued as a, uh, a relatively uh, benign or it's a curative or it's, um kind of like you know being on dialysis mm-hmm. or whatever it may be mm-hmm. but it's a lot bigger and more dramatic than that it's not necessarily bigger in size but it's much much bigger in scope mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and okay. there's a lot of a lot of landmines oh, along yeah. the way oh yeah yeah it's not it's not just straightforward like we mm-hmm. we wish it could be right yes yes agreed so uh here is an x-ray and I thought this was a great x-ray to illustrate a couple of things. You know, obviously you see, you know where the lungs belong, right? Mm-hmm. You see the lung fields, mm-hmm. okay, here and here, okay? Mm-hmm. And you see the bell of the diaphragm right here. Mm-hmm. And the stomach, you see there's a lot of air in it right over here. Mm-hmm. And the other diaphragms over here, you can kind of see the shadow right underneath there, but you got the heart there. Mm-hmm. You can see the heart's a little bit enlarged. It is. I can tell that from this, uh, from this image, you know, there's your heart shadow. Mm-hmm. There's the, the, uh, the, uh, uh, pulmonary, the knob of the pulmonary artery. So that's usually where the pulmonary artery exists. Mm-hmm. You see the Avalon cannula coming down. And this is such a good picture to show. Mm -hmm. This is a double lumen cannula. Mm -hmm. This part of it, if you notice, it's narrower 
than this part of it. And you see a place of transition right here. Mm -hmm. You almost see what looks like it could be a teeny little notch. I'm going right over it. Mm -hmm. But you see this is not as thick, mm -hmm. not as big mm -hmm. as this is. Mm -hmm. Because this has two channels in it. Mm -hmm. This only has one channel. Mm -hmm. This is coming up. It continues. There's another access on the, uh, in the up in the top part here, which mm -hmm. doesn't have a marker, mm -hmm. goes out and goes to the patient. And then the other half of this cannula, and it's not even 50% of it because mm -hmm. it's less. The channel going in is less than the channel out, mm -hmm. comes down and stops here. And that's your exit port. Mm -hmm. So you can usually tell where the outlet of the Avalon is by the transition from the larger size diameter to the smaller size diameter. And mm -hmm. it's going to be somewhere right in this area okay. here is mm -hmm. what I see. And you could tell that if this is the bell of the diaphragm here, this is very low. Indeed. The tricuspid yeah. valve is probably up here somewhere in this area. Mm -hmm. And your inferior vena cava, your superior vena cava is here. Your inferior vena cava is probably starting right about here. Mm -hmm. So you can see this is down deep, uh, deep probably, mm -hmm. you know, around the hepatic, hepatic vein, vein, right? Down pretty deep. So mm -hmm. you can look at an x ray and tell, now this patient would likely have high recirculation mm -hmm. um, because of that. And of course, that could also be obstructive and hurt the uh, liver a little bit. Hepatic so condition. absolutely. So mm -hmm. you can definitely see the right atrium is bulge a little bit here. You usually don't see that, but this is clearly cardiomegaly. Um, the lungs don't look too terribly bad. The mm -hmm. Avalon cannula is clearly too deep by about uh, probably two, two and a half centimeters, two to three centimeters too deep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you can see the ET tube here. I'll look at it and there it is right there. And your rhina is right down here. Here's another x-ray. This also shows, if you look at it, you can actually, and it's hard to see, I'll try to let me see if I can make it a little clearer. It's a little bit wavy because I don't know if you guys can see it very well, but you've got some pneumonia going on. You got some bad lungs, mm -hmm. but you can see the cannulas coming down mm -hmm. and I'm following it down and it looks like the tip is all the way down here. Mm -hmm. This is way too deep as far as this cannula is concerned. And I can see barely, but right here, you can see a transition point in terms of the size of the cannula. Mm -hmm. So this cannula is definitely too deep. Here's mm -hmm. your diaphragm here. Mm -hmm. And so that's another example. This is a little clearer. This previous one that I showed you is a little clearer, but that also is too deep. Now, this one, in contrast, if you look at it, and if you can look at it and see it, mm -hmm. you see it coming in here, mm -hmm. coming down, and it's actually turning and crossing midline. Mm -hmm. Well, the inferior vena cava is nowhere on this side of the body. Mm -hmm. This cannula has come out of the inferior vena cava and is rotated over probably in the area through the tricuspid valve okay. into the RV. RV. I was going to say that. Right. right yeah. And if you look up here, I mm -hmm. can't really see it too terribly well. 
um, where the uh, it came out. But it's not that it's it's not that it's in too shallow. It's actually in far enough. It's just in the wrong place. Wrong place. Because if I look, I can kind of appreciate that little divot I was talking about right about here. And that's about right. Mm -hmm. That's about that's right about where it needs to be. These are really bad looking lungs, mm -hmm. though. If you look, you can see, look, you can see the airways right here showing up almost like they're casts. Mm -hmm. Look at that right, right there. And you can see it here and you can see it over here as well. These lungs are in very bad shape. Mm -hmm. So this is another interesting one. Since you were a respiratory therapist, uh -oh. um, I was sitting at a hospital mm -hmm. and I was watching the patient and the patient was getting more and more hemodynamically unstable over time. Just wasn't looking that good. And I kept looking at the ventilator. Mm -hmm. And I kept noticing that the VTI mm -hmm. was consistently 20 to 25 cc's higher than the VTE. So the tidal, tidal volume versus expiratory tidal volume. volume. Okay. And I was asking respiratory therapy about it. It's like, you know, why is the VTE lower than the VTI? Oh, it just doesn't measure the same. Could be a leak in the tubing or in the back and the exhaust or whatever it may be, the filter. That happens sometimes. Nothing to worry about. I was like, no, I don't think that makes any sense. These the devices are really good, and I, I just don't think that makes any sense. Something's mm -hmm. not right. So I watched it and watched it and watched it, and the patient finally got unstable enough. I said, I really think we need an x-ray, mm -hmm. and this is what we found a gigantic tension pneumothorax. So this patient had a big time air leak yeah. in their the, right lung. Because of the pneumo. Because that's why the VT, so when you're looking at a ventilator, mm -hmm. you don't, you can't just look, with, especially with patients with, with very low compliance on their lungs, with really stiff lungs, mm -hmm. and peak pressures of 30 and 35 and mm -hmm. 40, really high, mm -hmm. super high, where you're worried about it. You have to look at not just the tidal volume, but you have to look at the VTI and VTE, and those should be equal. equal. One or two cc's off, I get. Give or take, right, yeah. 20, 25 cc's that's, every breath. That's a big number. You got a problem. Right. And you need to be aware of that, that that even exists as a set of numbers on your uh, ventilator machine, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the thing about this patient, unfortunately, this patient didn't survive, but uh, she survived this. She got a chest tube. No sooner we put the chest tube in and reinflated the fact when they stuck the hole into the, into the chest and the pleura, you heard the, the traditional whoosh of you know air, air come, come flying out. Um, reinflated the lung, got the chest tube in. No sooner that that happened, and we took the post, the post chest tube X-ray. We found that <laughs> the left side blue. The left side blue. This girl was. Uh, when people talk about COVID and they talk about COVID not being, I don't mean to keep going back about COVID, but this girl was twenty. 
I think she was 20. Was she 21 or 23? Remember? You know who I'm talking about, don't you? Mm-hmm. Um, she was a young, she was young. kid. I think she, she was young. She was like 23. I think yeah, she was she was young. But that's still very young. She yeah. was really, really, really young. Yeah. So that's what happened. She blew her left lung. And we saw this many times. And I guess initially the left lung started to overcompensate for the, all the, the pressure. Yeah. And, and, you know, before... Well, the right lung had a hole in it. Yep. So it wasn't... And then put a chest tube in and reinflated it, and the left lung decided to, to, to explode. To explode. Yeah, just nuts. Nuts. Mm. Oh, that's it. That's all I got. All right. Well, we could... Let's fill, let's fill five minutes. We're going to okay. end a little early today because we didn't take any breaks. I started early, mm-hmm. I, you know, and I haven't had anything to drink. Nobody cares. Nobody brought me anything. Mm-hmm. I do have some gum, though. Thank mm-hmm. God I have my nicotine gum. That's all you need. That's all I need. I mm-hmm. need my nicotine gum. Okay, mm-hmm. so with that said, I'll ask you, okay. what made you start? What made you want to be a perfusionist? So you were respiratory therapy. Mm-hmm. You did that for how long? Um, I did respiratory for about five years. Five years. Mm-hmm. Then how did you even hear what perfusion was? Um, I'm always fascinated to hear how people hear about it. When I started respiratory, um, I already heard about perfusion. Um, and because there were so many respiratory therapists uh, back then who went into perfusion, um, just with the respiratory background, you know, we learn about the pulmonary and cardiac circulation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that provides a, a great foundation for uh, getting into perfusion school. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, there were so many respiratory therapists who talked about going to perfusion school. Some did and some didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so we did, I did respiratory first. I enjoyed doing respiratory. Um, had my share of bedside ICU experience and uh, managing ventilators and whatnot. And um, so I wanted to further my career. And, um, and you know, and, and, and um, I observed some perfusionists just to see what they did in the OR. And um, I got to uh, um, shadow some perfusionists uh, in um, Alabama, Mobile, mm-hmm. Alabama. Mm-hmm. Um, That's where Amber's dad works. That's right. Yeah. Amber yeah. Maurer. Yeah. One of our new folks, her dad right. uh, is there. That's right. Uh, also worked at Oshner's uh, in New mm-hmm. Orleans for, for my respiratory career. Um, and um, got to uh, talk to uh, a few of the perfusionists. I would usually see them transporting the patient out of ICU, you know, after a heart, you know, on a balloon pump or mm-hmm. a nitric. Um, and obviously they, they're usually on a ventilator, so I get to, you know, get the hand off and talk to them and, uh, learn a little bit about them, you know, about what perfusion was. And mm-hmm. uh, it really interested me, and I wanted to, uh, you know, challenge myself some more. So, mm-hmm. um, and the best thing I could have done for myself, I, I love perfusion. So, so, so when you were at Ochsner, was Dr. Ochsner work, still working? Was John Ochsner working? He, um, he was working, but I think he was doing limited cases. Kind of semi-retired. Yeah, semi-retired. Yeah. Semi-retired. He wasn't doing a whole lot of cases. He was an interesting character. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you what, he was an inter- very interesting I, I've character. Never get, I, I have a picture, meet him. actually, mm-hmm. of him. Uh, can, you mind if I share a picture? Yeah. You don't mind? Yeah. Can I, is it possible to, to share my phone or no? Yeah. I can? Hold on. Let me, uh, let me find it first before I share it. Mm-hmm. Make sure that I don't show anybody anything I should. <laughs> God knows what's on here. 
I do want to show this picture. Let's see. This is, I think, this just the kind of man that he was. Here it is, right here. There's picture at the hospital. There's pictures of him, you know, all all over, like on the walls, and yeah, yeah he's a. Uh, so let me uh, let me share this picture. Mm -hmm. um, there, share my phone, Joe's iMac. And this was taken, of course, you know, um, oh, good Lord, 14 years ago. Oh, wow. Uh -huh. 14 years ago. That's my, my granddaughter and, and, uh, and Dr. John. Wow. Yeah, she was like, mm -hmm. I think she was like six years old there. Maybe she was eight. Mm -hmm. And she's 20 now. So that'd be 12 years ago, 12 to 14 years mm -hmm. ago. Yeah. Yeah. Super incredibly, incredibly nice. Oh, wow. Incredibly nice man. Mm -hmm. It was very nice. I have another picture too of this. That's Dr. Len Bailey, of course, with oh, Dr. Bailey, yeah. with uh, my granddaughter. This is in the New Orleans conference. Yeah. Uh, when we did that. All right. Thanks, man. You can take that down. Um, yeah. They were. They were. They were just. They were real. They were unique individuals. Mm -hmm. You know, when you really think about um, the things that they did, you know, the, the, the things that they accomplished, you know, they had their moments of mm -hmm, course, mm -hmm. and they had their, their personalities and all that kind of stuff, but they were, uh, they were unique characters, you know, of course, Dr. Cooley's gone and mm -hmm. Dr. Oxford's gone. Dr. Robichek is gone. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dr. Bailey's gone. Mm -hmm. You know, these, these guys all, uh, you know, they just all passed, mm -hmm. you know? And uh, anyway, so and how'd you, how'd you get into perfusion? No, we're not here to talk about me. <laughs> Come on. We're yeah, not somebody, here. I to, know. No, we're not here to talk about me. We're here to talk about you. Me. <laughs> yeah. I want you to tell me uh -huh. about your most challenging case. The case that stands out to you that just is indelibly impregnated into your memory. I don't know. I've had, I mean, a bunch of cases where... You know, they've gotten hairy, but I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, I, I don't know if there's one case that stands out. Um, you know, I, I have to say, though, you know, you know, in, 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 in our career, um, you never know when that case is going to come. Mm -hmm. And you definitely have to prepare yourself. So it could be an easy, you know, straightforward two, three vessel cab and turn to, into something else. You know, you find, you know, uh, you know, mitral regurge. You end up doing a mitral and a cab, and you know that could you know lead to some other issues. Or you and I hate mitral do, doing an echo, and you find you know uh, ascending aortic, you know mm -hmm. aneurysm, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have to circuit rest. So. Have you ever had a case where you were on pump, you came off pump, they decannulated, and the cannula tore the aorta, and you had had a, a big time aortic dissection? <laughs> no, you haven't had I that have, happen. I've heard some stories about. You've that. heard stories I've of heard it, stories. yeah. Yeah. I've, heard, I've heard stories about that. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, I can imagine that. I mean, that's that's scary. Because then, I mean, thankfully, you know, you still have a a, a pump with some heparin in it, and uh, you know, still primed and you know, ready to to get back on. Yeah, but you're gonna get back on in different ways. In different ways. Yeah, cooling. You, it's not just gonna be go back on. You're gonna have to yep. now deal with with either integrators or, or you're going to have to deal with selective cerebral perfusion. Sure. You know, you're going to have to do circa rest. You know, you're going to have to freeze this right. patient. Right. There's uh, so many things that that's going to happen in a hurry. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Those are horrifying. Th then, then I find cases, but uh, you do a case like that. Uh, you get through it. I think you come out uh, a better perfusionist every time. Yeah. <laughs> you learn something. You, 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 you forget how, 
quick and you know your instincts are you know you forget what you actually know and remember you know when you have to act and think you know it's fire drill right yes it's a fire yes drill. absolutely yeah, absolutely yes you know so you always gotta make sure you're prepared yeah. prepare hope for the best and prepare for the worst how about your most rewarding case mm -hmm. so not necessarily your most horrifying case but what is what is in your career which now is what you graduated from texas heart right 2008 yeah. you graduated in 2008 so you're 12 years now doing this mm -hmm. uh, 12 14 years 14 now years. doing 14 years doing this job i forgot it's 2022 exactly. i miscalculated that picture too <laughs> i calculated it on 2020 uh -huh. no it's 2022 so it was longer than that ago wow man yeah. um but uh so in 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 that 14-year time span, is there not necessarily a case that stands out in terms of your most challenging case, mm -hmm. but is there a moment in time that you reflect upon as your most rewarding um, time in this industry? And it could be a case, it could be just a circumstance, it could be anything. Um, I have to say, um, when I worked downtown at the Med Center, um, we, I got to take care of a, a patient, a young girl, she was 18, um, she was on ECMO for about three months. Um, she was waiting for a transplant. You know, we heart we, or lung? Uh, lungs, or lungs, lungs, lungs. Um, you know, everyone had their share of uh, ambulating her, and uh, you know, she. You know, we we, we finally got her um, her um, a set of transplant lungs, and you know, she, the outcome was great. I mean, and you know, to see her come back and look so differently, you know without that mo minus the you know nasal came not even on oxygen and just you know this this young girl who still had the future ahead of her yeah and you know we were you know there it, it was a long fought journey for us and for her mm -hmm. and to see that happen you know and to be part of that that's amazing yeah know? that is amazing you know that is so what about your career are you are you 14 years later mm -hmm plus the time you spent in training. So, mm -hmm. but we'll say 14 years of, of, of clinical practice. Mm -hmm. um, are you still happy you did it? Oh yes, 100%. Yeah. I mean, I would recommend this profession to anybody who um, can deal with the uh, insanity of, you know, our schedule and uh, the cases we do and uh, the environments that we're in sometimes. But at the end of the day, the reward is, is, is greater than, um, than the work that we put in. Mm -hmm. So. Good. I'm, 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 I'm happy and, you know, hopefully I have a, hopefully I'll, 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 I'll reach your, your tenure of, of seniority. Don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. Let me give you some suggestions. <laughs> well, I, I have a third, third okay. one coming. So, you know, yeah. I, I don't think okay. pop, this, I'm going to be retired anytime soon. My recommendation is invest. <laughs> invest. Okay. Start investing now. Okay. The market's tanked yep, because right. now, of course, you know, Russia has invaded Ukraine and we've mm -hmm. got all this drama going on. So I don't know how low the market's going to go. Mm -hmm. Don't buy oil right now. Don't buy oil. Oil's a bad, bad choice. Mm -hmm. But you may want to consider looking at some investments because with the market being as low as it is, maybe index stocks or something like mm -hmm. that, maybe this would be a good time to do it. I don't know. It's gambling to it me. Is. Well, that's also, I mean, that's also, you know, taking its dips here and there too, right? Yes, the of course. Thing, yeah. Well, I pulled all my money out uh, yeah. not long ago yeah. and put it in, uh, in, in a cash mm -hmm. position because I figured something like this was mm -hmm. going to happen. I just didn't know when. Mm -hmm. And I am too old to recover from a big time correction sure, yeah. and a loss in my retirement income. Because people, you know, who have invested in stocks and whatnot, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, it's taking a dip. So you have to wait. So how long can you wait, right? Yes. For it to go back up. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But you know, we've been we've been lucky. You know, we've got some, uh, you know, real estate investment. So that's smart. We got it 
got it early, so um, right now is not the time to buy. Um, but maybe when the market starts to go back down, maybe it'll be a good time to get back on some mm -hmm. investments. Yeah, so you're not flipping. You're, what you're doing is buying and then using it as income. Income, correct. Right, yeah. which I think is yeah. smart. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you know, except for, I guess, Dubai, we're really not building more land, right? Sure. Land is, you know, property is, is a good investment, oh, yeah. I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's going to go. Unless up. you buy it in South Bend, Indiana, where, you know, it's, it's a disaster. So you got to worry about the community, right, that's true. that you yeah. buy in. Right, right. Because the neighborhood could fall apart that's as good. well. That's, that's true. So you yeah. definitely have to look on where you buy and um, how desirable it is um, and where the market is for that location. Yeah, yeah. and how long it'll stay de that's desirable. True. You know, but anyway, with all of that said, thank you so much for thank coming you. and thank having, you for having me. me. I've, I've enjoyed this so much. Thank you for having me. You, you, mm -hmm. you're, you're, a, you're, mm -hmm. a, you're an incredible, uh, incredible colleague, an incredible friend, mm -hmm. um, somebody that is, is, is I rely on so very, very much, and someone who I respect so very, very much for your work ethic, your knowledge, your experience, your uh, intuitions. Um, all of those things. So I'm, I'm, I'm really proud uh, to be associated with you. Thank, Thank you. you for that. The Elsa meter, you see it right here. I highly suggest if you are an ECMO program mm -hmm. that you reach out to Transonic and you get this for your program. It's very important. The, uh, the, oh, the other thing is um, that uh, we've been doing some a lot of simulations. We put them away. They're over there. We have the Eigenflow uh, simulator. We have the True Monitor. We have the True Vent. We're still learning too, but we're going to get better at it. We did it the other day with a CRRT machine. Mm -hmm. um, not a perfect set. Not not perfect, but you know, again, there's we're really pushing the limits of how we utilize online technology, mm -hmm. how we're able to educate people remotely. Um, and so stick with us. We appreciate everybody. Stick with us. Um, make sure you go on YouTube and give us those thumbs up, uh, that you subscribe, that you do the same thing on the Facebook and the Twitter, that make sure, what else do they need to do? What else do they need to do besides YouTube, FaceTime, Twitter? What else? Buy our app. We're on everywhere. We got podcasts. Didn't even talk about that. Go to your favorite streaming software and put in Perfusion Education or PerfWeb, either one. And, huh? PerfWeb, and you're going to find us. Okay, so you could be listening to this in your car while you're driving down the street. Mm -hmm. And these are interesting programs. We're trying to figure out schedules too. Mm -hmm. Like we've been doing, we did like longer programs. You remember last year? This year I've been trying to do short programs, like one hour every day. I'm not sure how that's working out. Logistically, those are challenges. Um, so we're trying to figure out what the best way to do this is, but we're going to keep going at it mm -hmm. until we get to where we have achieved perfection. Mm -hmm. It's a long time to get to perfection if we'll ever get to it, but we're going to keep trying. Mm -hmm. And if anybody has any suggestions, you can contact us, of course, at perfusioneducation.com anytime you want to. I think it's contact at 
perfusioneducation.com. You can always email me personally. Uh, you can find us, our, our thanks, uh, David. You can find us there. You can uh, reach out to us. You go to our website and find contact us and click it. We try to make it as easy as we possibly can. And we're gonna continue to add more content experts, not just me, although I know everybody enjoys seeing me. You always wanna see me. I'm the favorite, right? Of That's course, right. On the, I'm the show. Right. This is my show. Mm -hmm. This is my show. I could be here whenever I want. <laughs> Sometimes though, I gotta turn it over to Tammy because <laughs> I can't be here. And she does a great job mm -hmm. with it too. She has the Tammy Sparacino Journal Club yep. and mm -hmm. does a great job. You've done a great job. You, you did a program on, uh, Ventilators. on uh, ventilators mm -hmm. and uh, understanding them and there are some complicated tools i'll tell you what mm -hmm. they are not as simple as they look it's not, it's it's not. not just a bellows that breathes in and breathes out <laughs> it's a lot more hard it's a lot harder than that mm -hmm. okay well thank you again thank you appreciate you david magic this has been a great show i've enjoyed this show more than i have any of the other ones so far in 2022 and uh, I appreciate all of your efforts, and we will see you back, I think, March 8th. March 8th at 8 a.m. We'll see you then. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye.